Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Welcome to the Inkstain Wretches interview. Chris is on vacation, and I am thrilled to be joined today by the Wall Street Journal's Global View columnist and the author of the new book, Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People, which you can buy on Amazon or your local bookstore. Walter Russell Mead also happens to be my former boss. I was his research assistant many years ago at the Council on Foreign Relations. Walter, thank you for joining us. Eliana, it's great to see you again and great to have you here. Walter, I am going to get to your book, which happens to be timely. We're taping this about a week before we're actually going to publish the podcast, but Biden has just returned from the Middle East. When we're taping this, what should we know about Biden's Middle East trip, which he stopped in Israel, but the trip was really more about Saudi Arabia, and we saw him fist bump the crown prince over there. After saying that he, I think it was two years ago, that he was going to make MBS a, a pariah, what happened here and what should our listeners know? Well, the first thing is in foreign policy, never call somebody a pariah just because, you know, we have this word diplomacy and diplomatic. You may, never know in, in foreign policy when you might need somebody. So be very, very careful who you like, who you try to cancel. The first thing I say is that Biden has gone over there at a major moment in Middle Eastern history and in the history of American foreign policy. The JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, is pretty much DOA at this point. They're, the Europeans are keeping it on life support, but to some degree the, the, the Iran nuclear deal is no longer relevant. That means that the Biden administration has to deal with the possibility of an Iran that's not contained that is moving toward a bomb. Biden administration really doesn't want Iran to get the bomb. It also doesn't want the U.S. to get involved in a war to stop Iran from having the bomb. And that means closer coordination with allies like Israel and Saudi Arabia. And I think that's, that's probably the underlying logic of the trip. What assumptions did the Biden administration go into to enter the presidency with in 2020 that turned out to be wrong. You've written a little bit about this in your column, but your book, I, I mentioned like off mic that it's ostensibly about the U.S.-Israel relationship and why Americans are supportive of that relationship. But it's really a history of American foreign policy over the past several decades. So I think that this question really does relate to the book. Yeah, right. Well, that was that was kind of one of the thing, one of the difficulties of writing the book because to write Ark of Covenant and explain American foreign policy to Israel, one of the main points I wanted to make was this isn't something that American Israel policy isn't something that the Israel lobby forces on the United States, but has to be understood in the context of American foreign policy generally. Well, if you're going to make that point, you have to tell people what American foreign policy has been about. So that's, and, and so you end up inevitably talking about American foreign policy globally, regionally, and then to Israel. So 
And now I've forgotten your original question. The original question was, what were the assumptions that the Biden ah. administration went, it came in with that turned out to be wrong, right. that forced them into this kind of embarrassing 180? Look, I think they had they had a, a, a global vision when they started, and, and I, they, weren't, they weren't shy about sharing it. And the idea was that what America needed to do was to, was, was first, as they used to say, park Russia. So that, you know, just stop Russia being a problem. Find a way to deal with Putin and, and stabilize that situation. Number two was get back into the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, as a way to stabilize the Middle East. Number three, then focus on China. Now that you had the Middle East quiet and Europe quiet, you could, you could put all your energy toward China. And number four... The thing that would make all of this work was your commitment to climate change, to fighting climate change, and to green policies globally. That would bring progressives behind the administration's foreign policy. It would make the Europeans happy, and it would advance an important goal of the Biden administration. And so they saw all of these as part of a one big plan. Then, unfortunately... Putin turned out not to want to be parked. <laughs> Iran turned out not really to be that interested in returning to the JCPOA. And instead of a global push for climate change, they're looking at a global energy crisis at where access to hydrocarbons is now what everybody's worrying about. And high energy prices threaten not just the Democrats in the midterms, but threaten probably in 2024, unless something changed, would be a real headwind for Biden's reelection or any Democrat. What do American reporters get wrong about the U.S.-Israel relationships? Like, what are some of the common tropes when you're reading the newspapers in, in the morning that you see and hear that are just wrong? Well, I think one thing is there's still a kind of an assumption that the central question in the Middle East is whether the Israelis and the Palestinians can find some kind of a solution to their their quarrel and that if you could get that right then everything else would be good in the Middle East and if you don't get that right then the Middle East is going to be full of trouble and that's just not true all right that's a big one are there other more minor ones that you see infecting news coverage of the right. Middle East that that you'd like to swat down while you have the opportunity yeah. well there are lots I mean there really are lots of things I don't want to quite get to the point the Obama administration did of saying a lot of reporters are 23 year olds and so they're very easy to spin <laughs> first of here's all here's your opportunity to spin them right, right here no I'd say first of all I actually know a lot of extremely intelligent 23 year olds or just recently ex 23 year olds so uh, they're not as easy to spend as you might think, but they often don't have a deep background in, in, in what's going on. I think one of them would be that big problem is that people think American domestic energy policy does not affect our relationship to the Middle East. But in fact, the, the energy independence that we achieved through fracking and the prospect of much higher U.S. production for a long time into the future had a hugely stabilizing impact, not just on oil and gas prices, but on the Middle East and on our relationship. Because when it looked like American production is and global production is on a long upward trajectory, 
then markets don't get so nervous. And instability in the Middle East doesn't matter as much to America's global strategy, to the world economy. But what we've seen is that over the last few years, the green movement wanting to get rid of fossil fuels and not having the political strength to actually attack people's energy use and say, we'll ration energy or we're going to jack up, artificially jack up the price to suppress demand. That's so unpopular they can't do it. So they've looked at ways to use pressure financial institutions not to invest in new oil and gas production, create regulatory obstacles, not just to the drilling, but to pipelines and anything they can think of, and try to use the World Bank and the IMF to block certain kinds of fossil fuel things, all of which may be totally legitimate from a climate point of view. However, what they then do is they mean that countries like ours and free countries speaking generally won't invest in new energy, which means over time you're handing power to Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia. And so we're actually, our new dependent, Obama's, sorry, Biden's fist bump with MBS is actually the result of, you know, crazy energy, a disassociation of energy policy. And I think a lot of journalists don't understand this, that our, in, our ability to be indifferent to Saudi Arabia actually was a function of successful energy policy. I wanted to ask you about that fist bump, which enraged the folks at the Washington Post who were upset about the murder of, they call it the, you know, their colleague, Jamal Khashoggi. And the publisher of the Washington Post, Brad Ryan, put out a statement saying that that fist bump projected a level of intimacy and comfort that delivers to MBS the unwarranted redemption he has been desperately seeking. What is the post getting wrong? Are they getting anything wrong? Like, what are what are journalists who are aggrieved by that murder not understanding about complex diplomatic situation here? Well, let me just say, first of all, as an American columnist, I strongly object <laughs> to foreign countries killing American columnists. And let's put that unambiguously on the record. When I go into foreign consulates around the world, I really want to come out in the same number of pieces <laughs> that I went in with. So, and, and there's really no way of, of, of ignoring the sort of, you know, the brutality and frankly, the incompetence of, of what was done. What was it they said after Napoleon had the Duke d'Angene kidnapped and, and killed? It was worse than a crime. It was a blunder. And, and it was not – you'll notice that Saudi Arabia hasn't been bringing, using bone saws on other journalists since then. I think some, a lesson has been learned. On the other hand, in international politics, you can't always be governed by your impulses and your heart, even when those are very generous impulses. And, you know, think about World War II when in order to win World War II, America was willing to ally with Stalin. And talk about a fist bump. Look at some of those old pictures of Franklin Roosevelt with Stalin, all right? But there was no choice. You could, if you wanted to beat Nazi Germany, you had to not only help Stalin survive, but in a sense, leave him strong enough so that at the end of the war, he could conquer half of Europe. 
when you've blown the cookies and when you've just gotten foreign policy wrong, there's a price to pay. That price often means that you have to do really horrible things that you would not otherwise have been willing to do or needed to do. And the fact that we've gotten our energy policy wrong, the fact that that the international situation is so difficult that we failed to deter Putin from attacking Ukraine, all of these things create a reality in which a president, any president of the United States might have to do some things that made him look bad, and I'm sure Biden did not enjoy sort of publicly having to eat his fine, courageous words about making him a pariah, right? But that's, that's what happens when things go wrong. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book, and I want to ask you a little bit more about what's in the book now, but you're, I know from working for you that you're from small town South Carolina, and you went off to boarding school at Groton, and you went to Yale, and it doesn't seem to me that a book on Israel, you're not Jewish, is like the natural outgrowth of this background. So how did you come to write a magisterial book about America's relationship with Israel? Well, one of the things I say in the book is that Israel is a speck on the map, but it occupies a continent in the American mind. And so at one level, just if you want to understand how Americans think about the world and how that affects how our foreign policy works, you have to study the U.S. relationship with Israel because it's actually, while it's never been our most important trading relationship, never been our most important security relationship, it has a psychological and a political importance in America that totally, you know, outweighs its limited size and scale otherwise. So there's that. But also, one of the reasons that people have such a hard time understanding the role that Israel plays in American in the American mind and why you need to study this relationship to understand our foreign policy generally is is really actually a, the kind a kind of a cultural fog I don't think it necessarily comes from the individual anti-Semitism and hatred, you know, but that there's certain cultural memes and ways of thinking about the place of Jews in society that even people who are not conscious of any ill will toward individual Jews, they sort of see, put it in a very crude way, they see a Jew in a bag of money and they stop thinking. They think, you know, <laughs> that, okay... If, if a Jew writes a check, then we obviously know how the world works. And I've come more and more to the belief that, that anti-Semitism is as evil as all forms of racism and so on, but it also has a special feature in that it, an anti-Semite is not able to understand the way the world works because anti-Semitism is often a prejudice about power. So if you think that, quote, the Jews run the banking system, you will never understand the banking system. If you think that the Jews understand and control American politics, you're not going to understand politics. And you, and I think you see this. And so part, in order to be able to you know, when, when people think, okay, the reason America has a pro-Israel foreign policy or has had at various moments, because as I say in the book, our 
policy has not always been so pro-Israel. The reason that we do that is because an Israel lobby or the Jewish lobby is making us do that. That stops people from thinking about how does America work? How, what, what are the forces that actually move and shape our politics? So I wanted to clear that vapor away in order to give a clear view of something that's very important. I want to dig into that a little bit. We have politicians who have gotten into hot water for tweeting or saying, you know, it's all about the Benjamins. It's it's APAC. It's the pro-Israel lobby. It is the Jews writing checks. What are they not understanding and how 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 does it actually work? All right. That's a huge question, but I trust your in your economy of words that you'll be able to give, you know, a three-sentence answer about right. how it all works. Right, right, sure. Uh, look, well, one thing I'd say is, first of all, there's this uh, one element of anti-Semitism is the belief that the Jews all think the same way. In fact, Jews differ tremendously. I used to give lectures in the Middle East, actually, about exactly this subject. And in trying to explain... I've borne witness to some of these in, yeah, in Pakistan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I'll say... You know, people say, well, America, you know, the, the Jews control America, and that's why we have the policies that we do. I'll say to that, which Jews? I'll talk about, you know, I know George Soros, and he, and he, you know, he, and I know Paul Wolfowitz. Paul Wolfowitz, for our younger listeners, was a neoconservative who was very prominently associated with President George W. Bush's foreign policy, including the invasion of Iraq. And... A point would be that that Soros and Wolfowitz disagreed about almost everything when it came to foreign policy and even when it came to Israel. And when they disagreed, they don't go into the secret room with the Council of Jewish Elders and come up with the Jewish party line on what do we do. No, there's an open fight between these different positions and often resolved in elections where the one who gets the most Jews votes from non-Jews wins. That there is this, this idea that the Jews operate as a cabal is crazy. In fact, again, there are many people who blame George W. Bush's policies in the Middle East on the Jews, who blame Donald Trump's policies on the Jews. American Jews vote in very large numbers or large majorities against both George W. Bush and Donald Trump. And for that matter, gave Barack Obama the highest percentage of votes of any group in America other than African Americans. And so to, to say that the policy, if, if the Jews ran American foreign policy, Donald Trump would have never been president. The, you know, Jerusalem would not have been formally recognized by the United States as under Israeli sovereignty. We wouldn't have seen the American president working for the Abraham Accords. And not only that, Donald Trump's efforts on Israel didn't really win him a lot of new popularity among American Jews. The large majority continued to oppose him in 2020 and opposes him today. So t when you start blaming or crediting, depending on your point of view, American policy on a group which opposed the people who made the policy, this is really prejudice. This is not reason. This is just wrong. If I wanted a political career, and let us all be grateful that I don't because <laughs> I'd be an absolutely terrible politician, 
and I and my goal was simply to raise money from American Jews, the and and get support from American Jews. That was my goal. I would actually run to the left of Obama on Israel policy. There is, you know, you American Jews tend to poll to the left, and and the giving of American Jews is heavily skewed toward very liberal candidates, including on Middle East issues. Walter, you write about something in the book called that you term the great miscalculation. And I want to read a little bit from the book. You write uh, that in the post-Cold War world, quote, the new American foreign policy universe, a loose group that included journalists, academics, activists, community and civil society leaders, leaders in the world of business and labor, as well as career officials in the vast national security complex and elected officials, has had never been as large, as diverse, as well-traveled, or as credentialed as it had become by the end of the Cold War. You continue, but despite all these advantages, with some notable individual exceptions, the broad group of Americans who concerned themselves with guiding the country's foreign policy was not very good at understanding either the state of American society or the state of the post-Cold War world. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the reasons for this gap between the credentials of the elites and their actual performance. You know, I think there are, and that's, that's obviously a big question about American life. Why, when we, as a society, we pump all this money into education, we are doing so many things, why we, ha- we try to have such an open dialogue why is it that our leadership classes, there seems to be this immense gap between the way they think and the way the world is? It struck me when I when I read that, it, it sort of brought me back to, you know, I, I went to an Ivy League school. I came from a household that placed, you know, value on these credentials. And then I was sitting there in Pennsylvania in 2016 and was totally shell-shocked by Trump's victory. And that to me seemed like, you know, I wasn't doing my job very well because I did not understand that there was a possibility that this could happen. Yeah, exactly. And and I think it's important to understand, you know, I can I think we both remember a time when Republican Beltway intellectuals used to spend a lot of time mocking Democratic Beltway intellectuals for being out of touch with the real America. But actually, Donald Trump stole the Republican Party out from under the Republican Beltway intellectuals many of whom have still not adjusted to this or gotten over it. So it's, you know, it is not a left or right division, actually. It is, you know, there really is something wrong about the relationship of America's policy and journalistic elites to American society. I think some of it, honestly, has to do with the the bubbles are bigger. You know, one one of the interesting things about going to Groton which is a, a very elite New England prep school. And Franklin Roosevelt went there. I was and, just going to ask, tell us about some of your fellow Groton graduates. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, it's Dean Acheson, Secretary of State during the Cold War, was there, went there. It's sort of a kind of a galaxy of establishment names went there. Also, McGeorge Bundy, Kennedy's national security advisor, who did a lot to get the Vietnam War going. Who is the most famous of your classmates, if not you? I don't really know. I mean, I think of recent grads. Chris Isham was the, you, you know, know Chris, him. yes. Good. He was a Groton guy. He uh, was the Washington bureau chief, I think, of CBS yeah. News. 
Among younger people, I think Bridge Colby, Elbridge Colby, who is doing a lot of work on U.S.-China relations, is a is a great. So we're still we're still hanging out in the foreign policy universe. But what I'm saying is, I think a lot about say why somebody like Franklin Roosevelt, who came from the most elite possible background and then spent 20 years in a wheelchair with polio, he seemed to be able to connect, whether you like the New Deal or don't like the New Deal. Franklin Roosevelt knew how to connect with the American people. And I think part of that is the bubble these days is much thicker, that we have a kind of a massification of the elite. So you can grow up in a well-to-do suburb where everybody you, almost everybody you deal with is like you. But if you think about when Franklin Roosevelt was, was growing up as a kid, if he wanted to play baseball, he couldn't find 18 kids of his class to make up two baseball teams in a typical neighborhood. That the, the, the elite was much smaller. You also had to deal with more people. You know, if you wanted to go out, you had to, like, get on a horse. And that often involved a groom. You know, you had a lot more relationships with people. And they worked for you and you needed to think about their families. I'm not saying all of this was better or that society was better, but the elites were closer to the people because the elite was small. The elite was small. Now it's so big, like you, you know, you, you go to Yale, yeah, there are a few carefully selected non-elite people there. But again, when I went to, to Groton in particular, Basically, the way you got into Groton in those days was you had a father who signed you up for Groton when you were born. And yeah, there was an entrance exam, but you didn't have to be Einstein to pass it. And so the, the and this was true still to some degree at the Ivies when, when I went to Yale, that you had more psychological diversity in those schools than you do now in the sense that there were a lot of people at Yale when I was a student who actually didn't care much about academics at all. You know, they were more interested in football or they were more interested in like social life. And you're saying that you think that's a good thing. I think I think that it was that that I think what you have now is people are superficially or in some ways they're more diverse, but psychologically they're all overachievers. Remember when I taught at Yale for a while, one of my students in the grand strategy seminar said, Professor Meade, says, you don't understand. We Yale students, we are approval-seeking missiles. <laughs> and to get into those schools, you have to have basically pleased every adult you met from when you were 14 years old on. Because, and, you, and you can't be, you know, in the old days, you could be like really good in, in art and just absolutely terrible in everything else, and you would likely find a place now you've got to, you know, your, your GPA has to be good. You have to be well-rounded, blah, 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 blah. So you get these, these schools are hothouses of very like-minded people, even when they, they may, some may come from, they may be global. They may come from many more. We had, there was a lot of, of, of Yale had only just gone co-ed and certainly racial representation was not very good at Yale in the old days. But psychologically, there was more diversity. And that's not just, that's just good for kids to be with people who are not like you. I want to ask you a little bit about your, your journalistic work outside of writing these big books. 
you've had a blog, you now have a column. You are the Wall Street Journal's Global View columnist, which I think is one of the most prominent column positions that one can have these days. But when I think about having a weekly column, like I have psychological, speaking of psychological diversity, I have psychological meltdown thinking about coming up with these ideas. How do you come up with your ideas? Like, is there a disciplined method that you have to come up with these things every week? Well, you know, first I'd say it's great to, to come to a column, I won't say toward the end of my career, because I'm kind of hoping my career is going to drag on as long as Nancy Pelosi's or even longer. But certainly to have a, you know, to have already spent many decades observing the world, traveling, thinking about things, reading history. So you've, you bring more to each individual thing that pops up. But the great thing about writing a column for on global affairs, Eliana, is that there's like eight, nine billion people in the world. Somebody somewhere is likely up to something interesting every week. And so, and you want with global view, you don't want to just write about Europe every week. You don't want to just write about Middle East, Asia, but you can, you can move around and you've got, you can have, you can write about trade. You can write about human rights. You can write about the war in Ukraine. Really, my problem is more that there's several really interesting ideas, and I have to try to think about which one is most important, which one will be most interesting for my readers. Walter, this brings to mind something I see in a lot of the young people who come through the Washington Free Beacon, but I'm sure you, you probably see it among young people who work with you who they they want to write opinion. And I usually discourage that and try to push them into reporting because I don't think that young people like have a lot to like nobody cares what they think. But what would your advice be for an aspiring columnist? Like, is there an appropriate age at which to start writing a column that is informed by opinion? And what is like appropriate preparation for doing that? Well, I would say, first of all, that, you know, that when you come, when it comes to genius, rules don't apply. There are people who are, you know, Walter Lippmann in some ways was, you know, might've benefited from waiting a little longer, but here's a guy who like in his very early twenties is, you know, helping Wilson, Woodrow Wilson figure out the 14 points. Not that that's one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of statecraft, but you've had some very young people have a big impact early. So I, I'm not going to give advice to the geniuses. Well, I just want to tell any Beacon reporters listening that if you heard what Walter said and you think that's you he's talking about, it is probably not you. Uh, uh, or like virtually anybody listening, this genius person out there is probably yeah. not you. So, what was but, but point taken. There was this thing where somebody came up to Mozart and said, you know, so, you know, I'd like to write symphonies, you know, how do you, how should, what should I do? And Mozart said, well, why don't you start with something simple, like writing, you know, a simple tune or a theme and, and, and then work on that. But, and the guy said, but, but Herr Mozart, you didn't do it that way. <laughs> you said at four years old, you were writing symphonies. Mozart said, yes, but the difference between us is I never asked anybody how. <laughs> <laughs> so 
you know, if you're, if you're a genius, you'll find your own way for the, for, for the rest of us. I think it helps to know things. It almost doesn't matter what you're learning in your twenties, but learn. One of the things that has helped me hugely is travel. I've been to something like more than a hundred countries, depending on how you count them. Cause you know, when you've lived as long as I do places that used to be one country are now eight or countries that you visited no longer exist. But, and in those countries, I didn't just like go look at museums and nightclubs, but I would be, you know, I do meetings, I've given lectures, I've been lectured too. And you get a, I've worked in these countries, I guess I would say. And that gives you a perspective. Read a lot of history. Young people often, and especially our educational system pushes this, think that theory is kind of the shortcut to really, to, to, to great thinking. It isn't. Theory is, you know, young minds are intellectually as sharp as they're ever going to be. And so, you know, many mathematicians and other people who do, and philosophers even, who, you know, can have great insights at a very early age, purely theoretical. But in terms of politics and relationships and things like that, you need the history and you need the context. So people who study IR theory, generally speaking, are easily misled by how reliable those theories are. And so they'll say, ah, well, I know what we should do in Bosnia because liberal internationalist theory or realism teaches X. That's not a very good guide to what you need to do in Bosnia. And neither one of them really, because those are very general statements about the direction of history globally. You're trying to figure out something very concrete and practical. So learn history and, and put theory to one side. Before you had the column, you had a blog via media at the American Interest website. And I think it's probably a big reason that you do have the column. It seems seemed to me as a reader that it had a, a small but incredibly influential audience. I know of more than one U.S. senator who read it religiously and used it as a guide to world affairs. And uh, I'm curious what you learned in the 10 years of writing this blog. It wasn't just you writing, but you had others writing for it. What, what did you learn about journalistic writing while doing that? Well, it's sharpened skills. I've actually been doing, I first started writing in journalism back in the 1980s. I used to do about a monthly column at the LA Times for a while on, on foreign affairs. And, you know, and I, and I learned actually a lot from that experience. For example, if you're writing a column for people in LA, use a lot of movie references. <laughs> they love them, you know, and it, and it works. The thing that, is actually, that has actually taught me the most about writing and journalism was actually right after I got out of college, I spent some time teaching high school. And there what it, I found teaching English to high school students who, you know, they're not that interested in the scarlet letter. You have, but there are things you would like them to know about the scarlet letter. It's your job to make it interesting to them. And that is your relationship with your reader in journalism. You're Scheherazade, you know, you're uh, Scheherazade in, in the Arabian Nights, who was the, uh, was called in the, the emperor supposedly would have spend a night with a woman. And then like, she would be, he would execute her the next morning and go on to the next. 
And she survived by telling him the Arabian Nights, stories that were so interesting that he wanted to keep her alive night after night. And so in the end, he falls in love and marries her. Very nice story that way. But as a journalist, you're Scheherazade and your reader is the Shah who's going to cut your head off if they're not interested in what you're telling them. Make it interesting. But at the same time... Can I just ask really quickly, what have you learned about how to do that? Well, I mean, there's some like ancient journalistic truths. If it bleeds, it leads. People are most inter- much more interested in themselves than they are in anything else. So you want to make it relevant to them. You, you need narrative. You know, we're all surrounded by facts. But if you can, if you can, one of the things we did at the American Interest on Via Media that really worked was we started organizing our coverage of Asia in, under the rubric of Asian Game of Thrones, the great power competition that was shaping up. Nice, catchy reference. But we were able to show how China was moving toward a fight for supremacy, how the U.S., Japan, and other countries were responding. And so we turned this, it was a drama with characters, right? And that's a character. So you build up someone like Mahathir or Abe, who were great characters doing really interesting things. And so we were able to finally get to a point where we would have pieces on Japan sends trade mission to Burma, which is like the dullest possible idea generally. But to readers following it, this was like, oh, Japan's daring move right into China's underbelly, you know, opening something up. And it tells you something about Burma and it advances the narrative. So you need to be thinking about the big stories that you're telling and then how this fact, this news event, fits into the march of time. And, I, and what we found there is that we could get we, another subject we did really well with and, and got a great reader response from was public sector pensions. Again, these are Jap, Japan trade missions to Burma and public sector pensions. What is duller than that to the average reader? But once you understand the forces that are at work behind them, and what this little obscure accounting rule change means to the way American cities go and to the future of American politics, it becomes gripping. So you have to find a way to make what's really important seem really, feel really interesting to readers. And here's the thing. A lot of people think that you have to go either to sensationalistic journalism or to, you know, dull but worthy journalism. Actually, no, because the more important something really is, in fact, the more interesting it is if you describe it correctly. So it's the, it's the journalist's job to make read, help readers care about the things that really matter. We were talking a little bit off mic about some, some of the meetings that you hope to have or plan to have with, you know, influential policymakers. And I'm curious. In writing the book, in doing the blog, in having the column, what you've learned about influence, both how to have it and how to exercise it as a thinker and as a journalist. I have to say that's something I don't understand very well, because, you know, one thing that that other people usually have a clearer idea of your influence than you do. 
you know, I'll notice now that more people know who I am when I go into a foreign policy room than did when I was 35. I can see that and I like it. But, but to what extent does my thinking affect what people do or think? That's very hard to say. And, and it's easy to either be too egotistical, I am, the, I am the center of the universe, or too modest, like nothing really matters. But it's like your shadow. You usually are not seeing your shadow, and so you're usually not aware of it. What I have, I've also learned that maybe the biggest thing I've learned in some ways, and I, this started with economics, is that what we think, we often think the intellectual debate matters more than it does. That economists debate among themselves about what's true. Gradually, the real experts reach a conclusion, and then gradually that conclusion sort of emanates out into the world. Having, having lived now at this point 70 years on this planet and watched many intellectual fashions come and go, I, I can tell you that in general, intellectual life follows politics more than, than politics follows intellectual life. And that, and so thinking, you know, so that if you want to understand in a sense where the profession of economics is going to go, you're actually better off understanding how the world is changing. What are the, what are the issues that people are having with politics? So the move, you know, in the 1990s, in some ways there was, a, there were very naive ideas about what free trade would do, you know, how quickly it would create a, a very happy, peaceful, harmonious and prosperous world. It would make Mexico democratic with NAFTA. It would make China democratic by bringing it into the WTO. All right. People didn't believe that because they had studied deeply. They, they believed it because it was in the zeitgeist and other experiences were predisposing them to see that. Now you're hearing all this, oh, we need industrial policy. Free trade is bad. This is less because there's been, you know, somebody has like refuted David Ricardo <laughs> than because politics and, and, the, and public opinion has shifted. So don't, as a, I think as a young journalist, it's really important not to let yourself sort of overestimate the influence of, of intellectual influencers. They are often puppets dancing on a string. I have a, a lightning round, like grab bag of quick questions to close us out, starting with your travels. But is there a favorite country you've ever visited? I'd have to say there are probably three countries that I really, I've never had a bad time in and have been to many times. One is actually South Africa, where I first went to South Africa after the first majority rule elections, but before Mandela had been inaugurated. So I met de Klerk, the last pre-Mandela president of South Africa, in his office and heard him talk about what he was doing. But then I've traveled that, been back to that country many times since the combination of scenery, wildlife. Everyone there is interested in politics, so you can hear from everybody. It's fascinating and beautiful place. Everybody should go. And right now the rand is very low, so it's cheap. <laughs> Strongly recommended. Then Italy. Oh, my God. You know, I don't have a favorite city in Italy, though. It's hard to beat Rome. But then you think about Florence and you think about Tuscany. And I just, it's just ridiculous. 
The food is great. The people are warm and friendly. The scenery is stunning. And you travel 25 miles and everything is different. I mean, it's great. And then I think the other one is England. I lived there for a year as a kid. My dad is, a, is an Episcopal priest, and we switched churches with a family in England. And so there's always been a little bit of a homey feeling to me in England, although these days I feel like Rip Van Winkle sometimes because the England of today is not all that much like the country I knew 60 years ago. Is there a favorite column that you've ever written or blog post? Hmm. None that really stand out, you know. I, I mean, in books, I really had fun writing special problems. I, I like all my books, <laughs> he said egotistically. I think in some ways with Ark of, the Co- of a Covenant, I've come closer to pulling together all of the subjects that interest me into one thing. Last question. You, you mentioned special providence, which, you know, the common refrain about it now is that it's the most, foreign, most important foreign policy book written in the last 25 years. And the, the conceit of the book is laying out the different, the different like, strains of American foreign policy, breaking them down into Wilsonian, Jacksonian, Hamiltonian, and what's the Madisonian Jeff- or Jeffersonian, Jeffersonian. Which, you know, you you did an interview with Susan Glasser, my former colleague at Politico several years ago, where you said that you you had a conversation with Steve Bannon, who was asking you a lot about Jacksonianism. And he put a portrait of Andrew Jackson or Trump helped Trump put a portrait of Andrew Jackson in the Oval Office. And you told him at one point, like, you know, Steve, I, I write about Jacksonianism, but I'm not actually a Jacksonian. So. Which foreign policy school do you identify with the most? Right. Well, I think what I would say is that, first of all, we all need, we need all the schools. That is, if any one of them dropped out, American foreign policy would be less effective. But also that if any one of them took over completely, American foreign policy wouldn't work as well. So it seems to me that really as a president, as a foreign policy leader, instead of thinking of these as, as options that you have to choose between, you need to think of them as like a violin has four strings and you need to, to make music. You've got to be able to play on all four strings. And I think our greatest presidents have done that. They've got each school has, has its uses. And you, you're, as a political leader, your job is to see where are we now? what elements of these American foreign policy traditions matter most now. I would say in general, since the end of the Cold War, we've let the Wilsonian get ahead of itself. We're, you know, we, we're thinking too much about, oh, our, our, our job is to create global democracy and global human rights and stuff. Those are all nice things, and I'd love to see them there. But I think we've, we've gone too far in that direction my column this morning in the journal, I talk about how the, in the war in Afghanistan, we are, with mission creep, we kept getting these more and more beautiful fantasies of what we wanted to make Afghanistan a showplace for gender equality and democracy. I think you refer to the tiny little detail we forgot, which is winning, winning the, the war. war. Yes. One small persnickety little <laughs> minor detail that somehow we just never found time to work on. You have to win the war. And, and so we need, so we need a bit more of the war winning and a bit less, a bit less of the post-war order planning, I think. 
Walter Russell Mead, thank you so much for doing this. Again, the book is Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People, which you can buy on Amazon or your local bookstore. 